right, we're ready to look at Isaiah 53 to 57 here in just a moment. If you were not here last week, and I think we mentioned this on Sunday, if you'll pay attention to the uh, calendar before you, you may have this fixed in your mind. If not, you need to get this fixed in your mind. Uh, tonight, on the 17th, we're covering Isaiah 53 to 57. Next week, we were slated to deal with Isaiah 58 to 61, but we're swapping that with the Sunday class. So we have, counting tonight, three more lessons in Isaiah. So tonight, and then two weeks from tonight, we're going to finish up Isaiah, but we're swapping the Sunday and Wednesday class. And that's because no one wants to lecture on Isaiah. Any man wants to raise his hand, we can fix the problem right now. Nobody raises their hand. All right. So we're going to swap that. Um, and that means all of the classes, if you have children that uh, in here, like the, uh, the classes that are in here tonight, will be in here on that Sunday as well. Um, I think I'm right about that. Uh, anyway, uh, we're swapping Titus. So next Wednesday night, be prepared for Titus 2 and 3. The questions you just received for next time is for Sunday the 28th. When I come back off of my meeting, I will uh, we'll on Sunday morning present this material, the next lesson in Isaiah. So on Sunday the 28th, be prepared for Isaiah. Wednesday night, a week from now, be prepared for Titus 2 and 3. And that'll wind up uh, the book of Titus. And then two weeks from tonight, we'll wind up the book of Isaiah, and we're ready to start a new trimester. Any questions on that? Talk to one of the elders after class, and uh, we'll uh, clarify all of that. Now let's get back to Isaiah 53 to 57. This is our outline that we've been following, two major sections. We're obviously in the latter part, the second section, and we are in this section on the suffering servant. We started in chapter 49 last time and went to 52, and we're picking up at 53, going to 57, so we're finishing this section. Uh, now, spoiler alert, if you're uh, looking at your handout, looking at the back page, always at the bottom, we have... Uh, if there is a messianic section, uh, what, what is the section that is messianic in this? The spoiler is the whole thing. And uh, so you're not looking for one particular verse or one particular section of verses. Is there, so are there some things in this that refer to the present time? That is the present time of Isaiah. And yes, there are some things, but it is messianic. Uh, from 53 to 57, as was 49 to 52. The whole section of the suffering servant is about the Messiah, obviously. Then we'll conclude by talking about the future glory, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Now, 53 to 57, here's what, what happens. I've, I've divided this into five sections, the five chapters. 53 deals with victory through the suffering servant. It is the most notable of the chapters in the book of Isaiah. Uh, and especially the ones tonight is the most notable. Uh, chapter 54, God will bless Zion, that is his people. Chapter 55, the great invitation for all to come. Chapter 56 deals with faithful servants in contrast to unfaithful leaders. Uh, there's where we get back to that present time of Isaiah. And then in 57, the failure of idolatry, the present time of Isaiah, in contrast to a contrite heart. Um, several things to cover and several things to deal with here. Now, there are two things that, uh, as your handout notices at the beginning, we're looking for in this, this section. Chapter 53 is one thought, 54 to 57 perhaps is an additional thought, and here's the point. 
Chapter 53 gives us a great deal about the suffering servant himself, the Messiah. So we, we see more about the Messiah himself, what he does, what he accomplishes, his mission, why, etc. Chapter 53. So there is the ser servant himself, the Messiah, chapter 53. 54 to 57 has to do with the blessings that are to be enjoyed through the Messiah. Is that all that it deals with? No. But I think we could divide it into those two concepts, two, that here's the Messiah himself and the blessings through the Messiah, 54 to 57. Um, now again, chapter 53 is probably the most notable chapter of the entire book. Uh, I think if, if, this were, if we had time just to run through every chapter and talk a little bit about each chapter, which one stands out in your mind as one of the most memorable chapters that you're more familiar with and perhaps more quoted than any other, it probably is Isaiah 53. There's some exceptions to that, but most likely for most of us, it would be Isaiah 53. Now, there is no doubt that this chapter deals with the Messiah. There may be some messianic sections we've noted um, in previous studies that you may have looked at and say, I'm not sure that's messianic. Um, and you may be right about that. Uh, there may have been some that should have been noted that I failed to note because I wasn't sure that that was messianic. But there is no question in our mind, at least there should not be, that Isaiah 53 is messianic. And that is because Acts chapter 8, and you're looking for this information in your handout, that Acts chapter 8 quotes from Isaiah 53 and it is applied to Jesus. So if you're not really familiar with Acts 8 and how it quotes from it, turn over there just quickly. And uh, I know without a doubt that this refers to the Messiah because he was reading, you remember the Ethiopian treasurer riding along reading out of the scriptures. And the place where he was reading, verse, 50, uh, verse 32, is the beginning of a quotation from Isaiah chapter 53. And then he began, the text says, at this scripture, verse 35, and preached Jesus unto him. So there's your divine interpretation that this is talking about the Messiah. So I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah. Four things happen in victory through the suffering servant. So the point, if we had to summarize it in one point, one statement, one sentence, what is Isaiah 53 about? It's the victory that we gain through the suffering servant. That seems to be the point. Now chapter 53, as I said, says, has four major points. He was rejected by men, verses 1 to 3. We're going to subdivide each one of these. The reason for his suffering was sinful man and the way man behaved, 4 to 6. Then there was total submission to his suffering. He opened not his mouth, for example. And then there's the victory and the reward because of his suffering. So here we have the suffering servant. Let's start with this, verses 1 to 3. That is that he was rejected of men. So the servant was, was more than just not accepted by man he was abhorred by man uh, in other words there are people that may not be accepted for who they claim to be but they're not hated and abhorred and despised Jesus was and that's the point we're going to see now verse 1 we're looking for where verses are quoted in the New Testament Isaiah 53 has several places and the first obvious one Lord who has believed our report is quoted in Romans chapter 10 and in verse 16 now, your footnote in the workbook will suggest this, and if you don't have the workbook, you'll get the point anyway. And that is that in Romans 10, he quotes this to prove, and you're looking for this in your handout, that the Jews had not obeyed the gospel. As proof of that, 
He quotes from Isaiah 53 and in verse 1, which doesn't use the word obeyed. It said, Lord, who has believed our report? And what we learn from that is that the word believe or faith can stand for obedience. We learned that as we compared the two texts and as we compare the context of Romans chapter 10. So here's the point. Uh, three things that happened in verses 1 to 3. First of all, his message was rejected. Lord, who has believed his, his report or our report? In other words, who accepted it and obeyed the report or that is his message? And to whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm perhaps suggests strength of the Lord, a reference maybe to the miracles that were performed. So he preaches a, mir uh, he preaches a message and then there are miracles and strength or power to show that indeed the message is true. But in spite of that, the message indeed was rejected. And so at verse 2, uh, that he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Um, the idea is that he was, in verse 2, he was not appealing to man at all. He was like a root that was out of dry ground, uh, a plant that seems to be insignificant. Verse 3 goes on, or the rest of verse 2 says he has no form or comeliness. Then when we see him and there is no beauty, that is, there was no splendor or there's no appearance. If you're looking at the workbook, notice the footnote, the New American Standard said he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, he didn't have the appearance where people are drawn to him just because he looked like a stately kind of person. Not at all. The NIV said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He wasn't the kind of person that you're drawn to him because of the, uh, being like a magnet of, uh, of great appearance that he has. Not at all. There was no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected of men. Verse 3. Uh, that is, he was hated by the religious leaders of the day. They despised, they rejected him. Um, Notice at verse uh, 3 that uh, he was a man of sorrows, perhaps talking about the tears that he shed. He was acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces uh, from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. In other words, he was ignored, um, and he was a person, indeed, uh, who was treated with great contempt. Uh, so what have I learned so far? He was, in, he was rejected of men. His message was rejected. Uh, people didn't think he was appealing. They didn't think he looked like the Messiah. He didn't picture, that wasn't the picture of the Messiah they thought he should be. And he was despised and rejected of men. Now the reason that he was rejected was sinful man himself. Two things happen in verses 4, 5, and 6. We see what he suffered and why he suffered. So let's talk about what he suffered first. What is it that he suffered? Well, notice that the text says, beginning at verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, we'll come back to that phrase, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Let's get verse 6, and then we'll summarize it all. And we are like sheep who've gone astray, we turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now, what did he suffer? There are three phrases that are used, or four actually, that he was wounded, he was bruised, there were stripes, and there was the chastisement. The idea of his being wounded perhaps has reference to the nails being driven into his hands, as we see in John chapter 20, uh, on the spear being thrust into his side, John 19, verse 34. He was bruised both in the scourging and in the crucifixion. The stripes, perhaps the beating and the scourging, 
the chastisement that is that uh, through, through that chastisement he was punished, not because of what he did. We're going to see what the reason for that here in just a moment. But back up to verse four, he was smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, as one writer, uh, Jackson, that I quote here, suggests that when he was crucified, it appeared to many that he had received that just condemnation uh, for being the, the, the fraud that he was. And so, the, um, uh, let's say I've lost my place. He was smitten of God. That is, he was, viewed as being, he was viewed as being smitten by God, God condemning him and God punishing him, at least in the eyes of men. Now, what, why did he suffer? Now, go back to verse 4. We've already read verses 4 to 6. It was because of our griefs. It was because of our sorrows. It was because of our transgressions, because of our iniquities. And verse 6 says, because we have gone astray. Now, all of those are descriptive of sin. Every one of those are descriptive of him paying a price for our sins. Now, what a beautiful picture we get here in Isaiah 53 of the Messiah of what he went through and why he went through that. He didn't suffer for himself, but he suffered for our sins and our iniquities and our griefs and our sorrows, and we were the ones who went astray. All right, let's go further. So we're seeing that he was rejected of men. The reason for his suffering was sinful man. Now let's talk about his total submission to the suffering, verses 7 through 9. His total submission through the suffering. In other words, being the servant that he's described as being, starting in chapter 49, he willingly accepted the harsh treatment and even submitted himself willingly to death. In other words, he didn't rebel. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says he didn't rebel nor resist. In other words, he didn't fight. He didn't, he didn't have take up a sword. He didn't take up uh, some resisting force. Uh, look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth, and he was led as a lamb before the slaughter, and as a sheep silent before the shears. So he opened not his mouth. What does that suggest? It means he didn't rebel. He never uh, rebelled verbally, nor did he rebel uh, physically. He willingly submitted to the mistreatment that man offered to him. Now notice at verse 8, he willingly submitted to the point of even death, that he was taken from prison, that is confinement and from judgment. He went through a trial, a sham of a trial, but he went through a trial nonetheless. He was taken from that trial, and um, I'm going to skip a phrase because I'm coming back about declaring his generation, and he was cut off from the land of the living. That's his death, talking about, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. I want to get the point, and then I'm going to talk about the difficulty of the verse. Uh, what I want you to see is his submission to the point of death. I want to get the flow of the context, and we're coming back to verse 8 in the middle. Uh, so he, he didn't rebel. He submitted even to the point of death. He was cut off from the land of the living. His submission led to, the, to, to his death. Now at verse 9, I'm not skipping all of verse 8. Let's go and get verse 9. That he made his grave with the wicked. I think that has reference to him being crucified um, with, between two thieves. Uh, or that he died the death and was buried, much like a, a common criminal. That's what the crucifixion was about. But with the rich at his death. Well, you remember in the case of Matthew chapter 27 that Joseph of Arimathea put him in his own tomb. He was a rich man. And so even though he suffered, uh, even though he was innocent, uh, he had uh, uh, and suffered a horrible death, he had an honorable burial in that he was buried among the rich. That is, he was buried in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. 
Now notice at the end of verse 9, the end of verse 9 says, nor was there any, uh, because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit found in his mouth, suggesting his innocence. There was, no, there was no cause, justification for his death. Man put him to death nonetheless. So there was a total submission. Now let's go back to the middle of verse 8. H.C. Leopold says, this is notoriously a difficult verse. And it is. Because, and the difficulty comes at verse 8. And I don't comment on this in the, in the workbook, and I don't know why. Because uh, every time I look at this, I, I, I realize the difficulty. I guess I didn't know what to say <laughs> about it. But anyway, that uh, who will declare his generation? What's that about? What does that mean? Uh, the wording of that is the, basically the same in the King James, the New King James and American Standard. So other translations help us a little bit. Uh, who will consider his fate? The Hellman's Christian uh, uh, standard version. The New American Standard 95 says, as for his generation, who, will, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Uh, one writer suggests that he's, that he's simply saying that he was cut off from his generation prematurely. And that probably is the point being made, though you look at about 10 translations and you'll have about three or four different concepts based on how they translated uh, verse 8. And Leupold is correct. It is a notoriously difficult verse. So going back and putting that in the context, that he was taken from confinement, that is, he went through the sham of a trial, he was arrested, and who shall declare his generation? Or, let's, let's take the New American Standard, or, or the Holman Christian, who considered his fate, uh, who would have considered his fate that he was, uh, who, who even gave consideration to the fact that he was cut off prematurely uh, in his death? Some suggest that's what he's talking about. Uh, others suggest maybe that he's talking about who gave consideration, who would have thought uh, through his death that was premature that what is accomplished would be accomplished. I think perhaps the former may be the correct. Now, if I lost you in that, then get in line behind me. I kind of got lost too. All right. So let's now go to the last section, 10 through 12. And that is the victory reward through the suffering servant. Uh, here's what's accomplished in, in this. Here's what is, um, takes place, the victory that comes uh, through the death that came at the hands of wicked men. Now, this is quite interesting, that he suffered wickedness at the hands of, of, uh, of man, wicked man, and through the same act that brought his death unjustified, also brought salvation to the very ones that crucified him. Well, that's interesting. And he pictures that here in verses 10 through 12. Now, let's start at verse 10 and 11. He pleased the Lord that he was an offering for sin. Now, the Lord wasn't pleased with how man treated him. But in that there had to be a sacrifice for sin, God allowed that and God was pleased with that. So, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Not that the Lord caused that, but the Lord allowed that and he became an atonement for sin. And so through that, man has the atonement. Uh, man has salvation. It pleased the Lord... In other words, the, the atonement was made, uh, that he was put to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, you shall see his seeding and shall prolong his days. Now you're looking for what does that mean? I think that has a reference to the resurrection. He was put to death, but in spite of his death, his days will be prolonged. I'm convinced, and I think most commentators think that that's a reference to his resurrection. So here's a prophecy of his death and his resurrection. This is why this is such a powerful chapter. 
talks about his death, his resurrection, and what's accomplished through that. Who he is, who he was, and we learn all about the Messiah. No wonder Philip began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. No wonder. He can find it all right here in this text. He was crucified. He was raised from the dead. Through him we have the atonement for our sins. Uh, it was because of your sin that he was crucified. Powerful passage to preach uh, the plan of salvation and the scheme of redemption from it. Now, the rest of verse 11, uh, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Uh, now, let's get on to verse 12. That gets verses 10 and 11, and his days will be prolonged, verse 10. Now, verse 12, to finish that up, what I'm seeing in verse 12 is victory over Satan. Satan's uh, the, the servant's victory over Satan is pictured as taking the spoils from war. And so that was something familiar with Isaiah's day of, of war and then taking the, the victor takes the spoils. And so get the picture now in verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion of the great and shall divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, this servant is going to be victorious over Satan and the powers of Satan because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So the victory that is promised, um, um, the victory that's promised uh, uh, through the Messiah uh, is accomplished in his, in his death is the point that's being made. Now notice he makes intercession for the transgressors, perhaps twofold. Uh, he did make intercession for those that, that, uh, were, uh, that were crucifying him at the very time. Uh, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Remember that found in uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 34. But then again, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7, 25. Perhaps twofold concept uh, is being presented there. Now, that, I spent a little more time with Isaiah 53. That's the most notable chapter. We need to be familiar with Isaiah 53. The rejection of, of men, um, and that is the reason for his suffering, the total submission and the victory and reward. That's the suffering servant, the Messiah. Now let's shift gears now, and for the rest of the time, we're gonna focus on blessings that come through this Messiah. The suffering servant who died for our sins, through whom we have victory, who overcame Satan, we have this uh, blessing that comes through him. So let's look at chapter 54 now. Uh, let me see if I've answered the things for the handout, if you're looking for those things. All right, let's go to 54. Uh, four things. Zion will be enlarged, and then Zion will forget the shame of her past, and God has a covenant of peace with his people, and then Zion will uh, have uh, glory and strength and protection. So let's start uh, at the beginning of the chapter here, that Zion will be enlarged. Um, in contrast to the past, such as Babylonian captivity, Zion will have glorious future, not literal Zion, but spiritual Zion, and we're going to see why this has reference to spiritual Zion in just a moment. Uh, we'll give some evidence of that as we go along. Let's talk about verses 1 to 3. Zion is going to be multiplied. Um, it pictures as Zion, God's people, as being barren, those who've not born, that should break forth. And so it's a picture of a woman that's barren, and she should break forth in singing, and you shall... Uh, uh, you who have not had uh, travailed with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of a married woman. In other words, you're, you're going to have children. They're not talking about literal children here. But Zion is going to multiply like 
Uh, and it's like a barren woman starting to have children because she's going to have more children than this woman who's been having children all along. Uh, enlarge, look at verse 2, the place of your tent. In other words, you're going to have to get a bigger tent and a bigger place for your tent because you're going to be enlarged. Zion is going to be enlarged is the picture. And you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations. From parallel to Isaiah 2, the nations shall flow unto it. All it's talking about is the spread of the gospel. The gospel spreads to all nations. Begins at Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, Acts 1 and verse 8. So Zion's enlarged in the sense the gospel spreads under the Messiah, and all nations are going to flow in it. That's all he's talking about. But he pictures it as flourishing in the nation enlarging. Now let's start at verse 4 through verse 8. Zion will forget her shame. Zion's going to forget her shame. The future for Zion is that she's not going to have the shame and disgrace that we've been seeing in the nation in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Uh, it's going to be different. Uh, so the shame of her past, the shame of her youth, this is where he jumps back and forth from the present to the future under the Messiah. Do not fear, you shall not be ashamed nor be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth. You see, in the future under the Messiah, from the vantage point of Isaiah, um, it's going to be better than it was. You're going to forget the shame of your past. For your maker, verse 5, your, is your husband. And um, let's get ahead of ourselves to verse 7. For a mere moment I have forsaken you. You're looking for this information. In what sense did God forsake them for a moment? I think that's a reference to the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Uh, if not then there's something else. And so I would be open to hearing what that might be. You may think it's another period. Uh, but in that, we're in the Babylonian period of the book, talking about the future, everything is not looking back to Assyrian captivity, but looking forward to the day that they're going to be in Babylonian captivity and then be released from that, and then ultimately to the Messiah. Then I think he's probably talking about that 70-year period. Um, just pass that on for what it may be worth. Now, anyway, for that moment, God had forgotten them, but uh, God's promises, kindness upon them. Now, notice at verse, uh, uh, look at verse 9 and 10. Now, uh, oh, oh, let's go back to verse 8. Here's the verse I was looking for, actually. That there is an everlasting kindness, and I'll have mercy upon you. Even though I, I turn my back on you and let you go into captivity, in that sense, I turn my back, then I'm still going to show mercy. Now, verses 9 and 10, God has a covenant of peace with his people. Look at verse 10. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed. In, in spite of the fact that they, of their shame of the past, the, um, my covenant of peace will not be removed. And then notice at verse, um, let me look uh, what I'm looking for here. Uh, I want to go back to verse 9. Th this is quite interesting. That in verse 9, that just as God had sworn to Noah, he mentions Noah, that I've sworn uh, thus that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. In other words, God gave a promise through the, through the rainbow to Noah that he would not destroy the earth again, and God kept his promise. And that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you, and the mountains shall depart, and the hills shall be, uh, shall be removed. My kindness shall not depart, my covenant of peace will not be removed. That has to be dealing with spiritual Israel. Here's why. And you're looking for this in your handout. Because physical Israel was not completely protected. In other words, as we point out in the workbook, that uh, 
physical Israel was subsequently ravaged by the nations, the Greeks and the Romans, so it has to go beyond some material kingdom to talk about a spiritual kingdom. This is talking about the days of the Messiah. Because if this is talking to them that I promised Noah that I wouldn't let the flood happen again and I've given a promise to you, I'll protect you and you'll not be damaged, and then they're, they're, they're taken by another nation, then they were damaged. God didn't keep his promise. I think he's talking about under the days of the Messiah. That's how we know this is. And, and by the way, that, that's part of your answer to how the millennialist uh, abused this text. Now let's get 11 to 17 and finish this chapter so we can move on. 11 to 17, Zion is going to have glory, strength, and ultimately protection. Notice the description. Sounds a little like Revelation, but what the description here is of a city that's pictured as having colorful gems, verse 11, foundations of sapphire, pinnacles of rubies, uh, gates of crystal, uh, all of those are simply, are not literal, but they describe the glory that God is going to bring to spiritual Zion. You say, I'd like to see the city. I'd like to see the city of colorful gems and uh, foundations of sapphire and pinnacles of rubies. You're in it. Look around. You're in it. That's spiritual Zion. We're in that kingdom. We're in that city. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the kingdom of the Messiah. Now, let's notice at verse uh, 14... Um, that righteousness will be established. I, I'm looking for a phrase. Look at verse, uh, to, to, to verse 15, uh, verse, verse 16. Uh, the weapons of war. Here, I'm going to paraphrase verse 16 and 17. No weapon, let me go ahead and get verse 17. No weapon will be formed against you shall prosper. In other words, God's going to give protection to them, to Zion. Uh, the weapons may be formed. Uh, whenever, whoever assembles against you, that's one of the phrases I was looking for at 15. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. In other words, I'm going to protect you. So here's the point. God's going to bless Zion. And so that's us. That's the kingdom. The borders are going to be enlarged. Uh, not going to, it's going to have glory and not the shame of old Israel. God has a covenant of peace with his people. And God's going to keep that promise, and he's going to give them glory and strength and protection. And it's going to be like a city built with, with precious stones and colorful gems. And that's what it's going to be like. A glorious picture of a kingdom in contrast to that dark picture of the kingdom to which Isaiah is preaching and prophesying. Let's go to Isaiah 55 now. Let's shift gears. We're still talking about blessings under the Messiah. Uh, if you're following on your handout, uh, we're on the second page. Um, and so we're looking at five, six, seven things here concerning the great invitation to come. This makes a great sermon. This makes a great invitation. Um, if you want looking for a good passage to use for an invitation on a Wednesday night, wait a few months when we've all forgotten about this and use Isaiah 55. It's a great passage for that. This is the great invitation to come. This is an invitation to come to the Messiah's feast. That's the feast you're partaking of. And so let's quickly run through this because this is quite simple. Uh, verse 50, uh, chapter 55, now this is pictured as a spiritual feast that you're, you're partaking of. Verses 1 to 3, it's, it's free without a price. Understand that uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the early period of, of uh, the Old Testament time, uh, there was not, in the Orient is what I'm trying to say, that the water sometimes would be scarce and it had to be sold and, uh, to, uh, and, and to be bought. 
but he's emphasizing easy access. Uh, come to the waters, have no money, come and buy and eat, yet come and buy wine, yet without money and without a price. Um, and so you come, verses 1 to 3, and you're, there is no money. It's free and it's, there's easy excess. Um, it's free without a price. Listen diligently, carefully, one translation would say to me, and eat what is good. Uh, incline your ear to come and hear the, and, and your soul shall live. All right, so the point is, it's free without a price. Anybody can come to this feast. Now, look at verse 3b through 5. It's offered to all. This is where the Gentiles are allowed to come in. Um, the sure mercies of David at the end of verse 3 is a promise that Christ is going to sit on the throne. Uh, and so used in Acts, verse 3 is quoted in Acts 13.34. In Acts 13.34, you're looking for that. So verse 3 is quoted in Acts 13.34. Now notice at verse 4, Indeed I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander. That refers, I think, to the authority of the Messiah. He's a leader and a commander. So we're learning more about the Messiah. Uh, Surely I shall call a nation you don't know. That's the Gentiles. And the nation who know uh, that you do not know shall run to you. So it's a picture of God allowing the Gentiles to, to come in. Uh, so who is this available to? All nations. Doesn't matter who you are, what nation you're from. This is a feast that's all open to all. It's not a limited invitation. All right? Now verse 6 says, you need to seek it while you can. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. That implies there's a time when he may not be near and when you can't. May refer to death, ending that, or the Lord's return, ending that. In other words, now is accepted time, 2 Corinthians. That time will not always be available. There's going to come an end to the time. Now, at verse 7a is a description of repentance. If you come, let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his unrighteous man his thoughts. That's powerful because it says if you're going to come and eat of this feast, you've got to forsake your wickedness. You've got to repent. But notice you've got to forsake your ways and your thoughts. Not just your ways, but your thoughts. It's not enough to forsake action. The thinking has to be in harmony with the Lord. Now, at verse 7b, you might underline or circle the word abundantly pardoned or something similar in your translation. It says, come and the Lord will abundantly pardon. This is what the feast you're coming to. You're coming to a feast to gain abundant pardon. Now stop for a moment because you're looking for this in your handout. But you've, let, me, let me get ahead of ourselves to say verse 8 and 9, you've heard quoted many times in sermons that my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways as the heavens are higher than the earth and so are my ways and your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. So God thinks higher than we do. You may hear it quoted in the context, God's smarter than we are, so therefore we ought to listen to him. God's got more authority than we do, so we ought to submit to his authority. That's true. Let's put it in its context. It's in the context of this abundant pardoning. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. You, you come and you've committed murder and God said, I'll abundantly, abundantly pardon. You're homosexual, God said, I'll abundantly pardon. You say, I have committed adultery many, many times. God will abundantly pardon. I've lied and lied and lied. I don't know how much, but God will abundantly pardon. Man has a hard time fathoming, fathom, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> fathoming that. Uh, few English teachers can correct me on that. Anyway, man can't fathom that. I got it right that time, that part of it. Anyway, he can't picture that, that God would abundantly pardon all of my sins. 
So God says, you know what? I just think different than you do. You may think that if, if you had to, to abundantly pardon someone, that's hard to, that's, I don't know if I can do that or not. I don't think that way. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than your, so are my ways and your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. It's in that context of the abundant pardoning. So what he's saying is, it doesn't matter what your sin is, how much sin you've got, you can come to this feast and receive your pardon. Now look at verses 10 and 11. This is going to be accomplished by the word. This is going to be accomplished by the word. As the rain came down from heaven and snow on the mountain and waters it, look at verse 11, you might underline, so my word that goes forth from my mouth, it, it will not return unto me a void, but accomplish that whereunto I sent it. Powerful assurance. When the gospel is preached, it does its job. You say, well, it, uh, we preach the gospel and it doesn't do any good. No, 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 no. You're denying this text. Don't ever say that. When the gospel is preached, it does its job. When somebody responds, and then most people don't, it did its job. It may harden hearts. It just did its job. It did what it's supposed to do. And it never returns unto him void. In other words, it's like sending the word out, and it comes back, and if the word was personified, said, I tried, but I couldn't do a thing. It was, I, my, my mission was useless. The word never comes back and said, I didn't accomplish anything. Powerful assurance. Uh, it just means it's going to do its job. And then verse 12 and 13 to finish that chapter, here is the joy. Uh, for you shall go out with joy. I think that's probably a play on going out from Babylonian captivity, that release from captivity and the joy and the celebration. But here it's applied to the context of like being released from captivity and the joy of your freedom um, through this spiritual feast of this pardon. Powerful text. Invitation, a great invitation. Come, there's no price you have to pay. In other words, it doesn't mean there's no obedience. It just means uh, it's free. It, it's easy access. That's the idea. Uh, it's not hard. It's not difficult. It's offered to everybody. Seek it while you can. You've got to repent. It's abundant pardoning. This is accomplished by the word and great release and great joy when that's done. Now, chapter 56. Chapter 56. What's it all about. Chapter 56 deals with faithful servants in contrast to unfaithful leader. So here, Isaiah urges faithfulness to those that seek the Lord, and he speaks of faithfulness in the day of the Messiah, but then he comes back to his own time, as he often does, of the worthless leaders in the day of the Messiah. So two things here. Verses 1 to 8, those who serve the Lord come to the holy mountain. Um, and he, he's, he's t talking about coming to the Lord, service to the Lord, coming to the Messiah. And uh, notice what he says about them. Those who faithfully serve the Lord are going to be blessed, verses 1 and 2. Notice he uses the expression, keep justice. I'm reading it, verse 1, and do righteousness. My salvation is about to come. Uh, he keeps from defiling the Sabbath, verse 2, and he keeps his hand from doing any evil. That suggests diligence. Uh, that suggests faithfulness. Um, I don't think he's talking about in the, in the day of the Messiah, he's keeping the Sabbath, but it's saying that he's faithful and he's diligent uh, in verses 1 and 2. Now, verses 3 to 8, his point is the foreigner would not be excluded. I just want to get a quick point on that, and then we're going to move on. Look at verse 3. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. In other words, the foreigner, verse 6, the son of the foreigner who joined themselves uh, will, will serve him. 
So the point is, it's going to be available to the Gentiles as well. So those who faithfully serve the Lord are going to be blessed. Now, you think of the powerfulness of this chapter. Chapter 53 talks about who the Messiah is. Chapter 55 talks about the invitation to come. Chapter 56 talks about diligence and faithfulness. You're talking about teaching somebody the gospel. Here's who the Messiah is. Here's coming to the Messiah, chapter 55, and here's faithful service under the Messiah, chapter 56 is where we are. Now, let's start at verse 9. Here's a rebuke of the leader of Isaiah's day. Uh, these are, this is a picture of watchmen who were careless uh, and uh, watchmen uh, who were blind. They're worthless leaders. They closed their eyes to the conditions. Notice the watchmen are blind. They're ignorant. They're all dumb dogs that cannot bark. If you don't get any other phrase, get that one. Dumb dogs that do not bark. Uh, that may suggest, um, uh, may describe not only the people, the failed leaders of Isaiah's day. I'm, in the footnote in the workbook, I suggest that that describes many preachers and elders who see problems and dangers and keep silent about it. In other words, we see sin going on, but we don't say a word. We're dumb dogs that cannot speak. Uh, you, got, you buy a dog to be a watchdog and he sits there watching the criminal break in and never barks a sound. It's a dumb dog that doesn't speak. Well, preachers are not any better than that, nor elders any better when they see sin and they don't say a word. They just let it go. Um, and that happens, uh, forget about the denomination, well, that happens among brethren uh, a great deal. All right, um, let's leave that chapter and quickly get chapter 57. Here's the failure of idolatry in contrast to a contrite heart. Now, the, the failure of idolatry. Um, I wish we had a little more time, but this is the, the nature of the beast we deal with. Look at verse 1. Uh, the righteous perish and no one takes it to heart. That's an outgrowth of chapter 56, by the way, of these failed leaders. That the uh, righteous are perishing and no one seems to care. And uh, no one's taking it to heart. Uh, no one's paying any attention. So here's the, the, the failure of idolatry. The righteous perish, no one takes it to heart. The idolatrous practice do not fool God. Notice the phrase uh, at verse 4, who shall you ridicule? In other words, who will you fool? Who are you fooling with your idolatrous practices? Idolatrous practices don't fool God. Now, verses 7, and you're, watching, you're looking for this in your handout, 7 through 10. The idolatry is pictured as being spiritual adultery. It's being pictured as spiritual adultery. Uh, it talks about uh, that you go onto the mountain and you go behind the doors and you uncover yourself. That's uncovering yourself as in a sexual relationship. Uh, you uncover yourself to those other than me. God's saying, I'm your husband. And in other words, you've gone and uncovered yourselves and you look at verse 8 at the end, you loved on their bed. In other words, you found another lover is what you did. And you committed uh, spiritual uh, adultery in your uh, idolatry. And notice in 11 to 13, idolatry, those uh, in idolatry forgot about God and they didn't have any fear of him at all. Uh, uh, notice he said at verse, at the end of verse 11, that you did not fear me. Uh, and notice the, the patience I'm, I'm, I'm looking for, I think in the hand that I had this uh, somewhere, they, they misuse God's patience and long-suffering as a permission to continue on in sin. I think that's what we were looking for uh, in that handout. Um, 
But the point is that idolatry failed. They forgot about God and they didn't have any reverence for him. When God was patient with them, they misused that and they turned to idolatry. Now, a contrast to that is the humble and contrite heart will be blessed. We're coming back to the period of the Messiah. I want to quickly get this and we're done. There's a plea to come back to God, but God, in verse 15 beginning, will bless one who has this, this contrite heart. Look at verse 15. With him who has a contrite and an humble spirit, uh, and to revive the heart of the contrite one. In other words, the one who comes to God, instead of rejecting God like in idolatry, that has this contrite heart is the one that God blesses. We're talking about the blessings under the Messiah from 54 to 57. And it's the contrite heart that receives those blessings. Now, what does it mean to be contrite? The idea of being contrite means that we are, uh, uh, we're humbled because of our sin. They're, we're brokenhearted over the sin. Uh, it is the idea of uh, being crushed. The footnote in your workbook suggests contrite means, this is from the uh, uh, Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, contrite means deep sorrow for sin. It means we're crushed uh, over our sin. In other words, I want to picture this contrast and we're going to stop. You ever see somebody who commits some grievous sin, like maybe they commit the sin of adultery, and they, they say, I'm, I'm, I'm repenting, I'm sorry. But then they talk about it as if they're boasting about it or they they're, seem to be unashamed of the fact, I've, I've done this, this sin, I've been, I'm unashamed of it. Uh, maybe I've got a child out of wedlock and I'm unashamed of that. Where the contrite heart is a heart that is broken because look what I have done. Mean, doesn't mean you don't forgive yourself. But there needs to be some contrition, some deep sorrow shown. For the sin that we have committed. What a contrast between that and Israel of old of the failed idolatry. The Messiah, 55 blessings under the Messiah. Remember our next Isaiah study is on Sunday the 28th.